Welcome to The Mushroom's Apprentice. I'm your host, Shona Holm. This episode features an in-depth conversation I recently had with my cherished and brilliant friend and soul sister, Venice McNeil. Venice is the executive producer of the cult classic documentary, Magical Egypt, which has captivated people around the world with its groundbreaking explorations of the deeper mysteries of ancient Egypt. She hosts the podcast, Magic Works, which provides a sneak peek into the subjects in the upcoming Magical Egypt series, focusing on magic and how it can help us today. You can learn more about her work on MagicalEgypt.com. Venice lives in Thailand with her partner, filmmaker Chance Gardner. Okay, Denise and I can talk for hours, so I hope you enjoy this lively discourse on magic and so much more. We will see where this is going to go. Let's... <laughs> you never know with Shutter and I, do you, darling? <laughs> let's get... You have interviewed so many magicians. In fact, let's talk just quickly. So you, you are the producer of Magical Egypt which yes. is absolutely brilliant. And so, and season three is, is going to come about here fairly soon, right? Well, actually what happened was it's now going, the magic season is going to be season four. Okay. We, uh, season one is kind of, season one really is the story of John Anthony West, where he is talking about his belief that ancient Egypt is the beneficiary of a prior ancient civilization. And it's all the evidence that shows that ancient Egypt kind of started at the peak of its sophistication instead of starting at the bottom and kind of growing up to being sophisticated. It's the exact opposite of that. It started, I mean, the very, very beginnings of it were quite naive, but very quickly went to the top and then came down. And then season two, we're doing kind of a forensic reconstruction of the symbolism in the art and architecture of ancient Egypt that really led us to the understanding that unlike us in our materialist prison paradigm, they actually had a very coherent understanding of consciousness. and the mechanisms of consciousness and shifting consciousness to be able to achieve different qualities of gnosis. And we were going to do magic as season three, but we really didn't finish that topic. So Chance did another six in terms of more of a looking at different ancient cultures around the world and putting together a big jigsaw puzzle in terms of what the ancient Egyptians were talking about, just putting the pieces together. So it will be now season four. And the reason that we, that I want to do magic in the first place is that, as I've mentioned before, um, we're the most materialist culture. We've completely living the the general population is living devoid of magic and ancient egypt in contrast was the most magical culture and so it fascinated me and there is a magician by the name of stephen skinner and he basically gathered up all the papyri and not only translated all of the spells from the priests of ancient Egypt, more really the Greco-Egyptian period, but he went through the process of testing them out. And what came out of that is a book about as thick as the Bible. And it's absolutely fascinating because there are love spells and invisibility spells and all kinds of spells that he tested out and actually had them work. And when you listen to Stephen Skinner, they're like, for example, he did an invisibility spell and this spell didn't make him invisible per se, but it made him not be seen. So he was in the middle of this big hmm, department store and his wife was shopping for lipsticks and makeup and he did the spell and she literally walked by him 
four or five times looking for him. He, she just couldn't see him. And so that really grabbed my attention. I'm like, this is really interesting. There's something there. And that's kind of really where the idea for the magic show came from. And as a result of that, I went through and kind of did some research and talked to probably, I would say, you know, 60% of the greatest living magicians on the planet today. And the information that I got back was so, as I mentioned before, so varied that it brought home to me that magic is as far and wide and disparate as there are people, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it, it seems like it is a birthright for each of us, but the analogy that I like to use a lot is if you take this huge, an, a baby elephant and put a string around its ankle then when it grows up into this huge, big, giant elephant, it still believes that this tiny little string is going to keep it captured. <laughs> and that's essentially what they've done to us today is that they have trained us to ignore the magical aspects of our lives to the point that we don't even see them when they're hitting us in our faces. Yes, 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 yes. And of course, the, the Kabbalion the first sort of, what would you call that? The first directive, if you will, is that all is mind. So yes. all is mind and magic ultimately works on the mind. And yes. it, it makes me think of one of the lines from one of the transmissions I received years ago was talking about how the mind is a wand. It said, uh, this wand takes lifetimes to find, so hidden is it in the mind. And so the sorcery, of course, hits the mind in a big way and controls it, the dark sorcery. And then this magic, when you can, can realize that and activate it, oh boy, you want to talk about infinite, infinite. Well, like what's really interesting to me, and, and one of the things that kind of surprised me is the layers of truth in that. Okay, so one of the questions that I asked people as I went through my investigation was these entities, for example, the, the, the entities that you relate to, that, that speak through you, are these real or are they in your head, right? Are they an aspect of your mind? And what was really interesting is the spectrum of answers that I got to that question. So for example, Lon Milo Duquette, who is, I don't know, he's published probably 30 books on magic. He's a member of the OTO. He is in the Alistair Crowley lineage of magic. He said, it's all in your head. It's just, you don't know how big your head is, right? <laughs> and, <laughs> and so that I struggled with because I was leaning towards the idea that these entities, not necessarily the personification, like the, the personification of them, but there are these energies, these forces out there that exist unilaterally of whether my mind is existing at all. So I've gone through this whole spectrum. And so what I did was I interviewed um, this new philosopher who comes from the idealist school and his name is Bernardo, Bernardo Katstrup and he's getting a lot of notoriety right now. And I'm going to butcher his philosophy completely because it's very sophisticated, but he, the way that he describes the nature of reality is that God, the, the creator, if you want to call it the creator, the God, whatever you want to call it, the big mind yes. that was all knowing of everything 
for whatever reasons, got bored, wanted to entertain, wanted to grow. When you know everything and you can't really have fun or grow or be entertained because you have full gnosis of everything. So it decided to divide itself in like a schizophrenic would into multiple personalities. Okay. And so just like when a person, a human being has multiple personalities, some of them um, are addicted, uh, like are allergic to peanut butter when they're ill peanuts, when they're in this personality, and then they can swap to a different personality and have no problems with peanuts at all. That's essentially what the big mind did. And the big mind has created kind of all of us as as schizophrenic personalities of the big mind and in a way that was kind of interesting because that would explain you just don't know how big your mind is but because again I'm researching it and I don't have first-hand experience for example as you do I understand the level of it's all in your mind. And I also can intellectually appreciate the idea that there are these influences, these being, these forces that have been around for the history of the earth or humanity that might in fact be objective creations. And so that question of, is it all in my head or is it outside of my head? I haven't been able to answer definitively, but what was interesting is that the spectrum of answers went across the board there, right? And so so in your, I'd love to ask you, in your opinion, when you're dealing with these entities, are they entities in their own right? Or is it your experience of them that they're inside your head? I think they're entities in their own right. I think also, okay, first of all, we are we are a greater, vaster mystery than we can even conceive. And, and I know them as today, as friends through time that have accompanied me through lifetimes. And, and as we all have, that is what I know this is true. And there are lifetimes when you tap into that and others when you don't, but yet they're still walking beside you. And I'm sure whispering little things into your ears here and there, guiding you, assisting you. Well, I've had a tangible experience. Like, I mean, I've had these experiences in my life that, I think really fueled this investigation. For example, uh, 2008, I think I had a car crash, um, a head on car collision. And the front of the car had been torn off and there was smoke and steam coming out. And Chance, my husband, ran around the side of the car and said, you screamed at me, you have to get out, you have to get out, the car's going to explode. And as clear as day as I'm talking to you, I heard a voice say, do not move. Now, I had my very panicky husband screaming at me and the front of the car was gone and smoke was coming out. Yet that voice was so compelling that I was not going to move, right? So some thing, <laughs> whether a guardian angel, an ancestor, I, whatever, I heard it and it meant business and I listened to it and I had a broken neck, which I didn't know at the time. And if I had moved, I would have been a quadriplegic. So little things like that have um, very much made these beings influences very tangible for me. But whether they're in my head or whether, you know, they're. Well, we can access them from within. We can access them from within. And some people, some people sort of naturally do that. They're just naturally, they have a proclivity for it. And others yes. have to develop it. But it is innate in all of us. And, and Brew, my late teacher, would would call them resources. Yeah, I love that. 
Look, I, I, I have to say in my playing, not playing, my, my, in my journey, one of the things that I have been working with is journeying, in fact, at going inside and trying to connect with these resources, if you will. And one of the things that has surprised me incredibly is that if you ask me before I go on a journey, what's going to happen, for example, I decided I wanted to do some inner child work and I was going to go down into the bunker and meet my inner child and hug her and love her and kiss her and look after and heal all of the damage that I did when I wasn't paying attention. And so I go on the journey and I go down and I knock on the door and instead of what I expected to happen, the inner child got the door and jammed it up against the door and said, you're not coming in here. <laughs> and so what I've learned is that when you get a surprise, something that you could not have anticipated, something that you hadn't even thought of, that's when you get to realize that these things have a mind of their own, you know, mm -hmm. and it's really interesting. I did another one where I wanted to do some inner work uh, on abandonment. And I was kind of thinking, okay, I'm going to do a journey with my ancestors and my, you know, and, and I think it's probably my issues coming from my mother and I do the journey and, you know, all the relatives are there. And all of a sudden my grandmother's like, <clears throat> excuse me, I was the uh, orphan and you, you know, I'm the whole picture of abandonment here. And I'm like, wow, Nan, I totally forgot all of that, you know? And so it, it it's so surprising and so helpful and so healing when you can go in, like you said, the inner net, the, the internet, internet. Uh -huh. <laughs> exactly. and connect up with aspects of yourself or aspects of your ancestors or aspects of your history. Like I found that to be incredibly therapeutic and such powerful and deep work in this process of getting your mind right. That. It also is one of those things that is simple, but not easy. Like in, in working with my husband, because he has lots of stuff that he needs to clear. And it's like, dude, all you have to do is go inside. It's so easy. But it's like, if you, if you are not ready or open to that kind of work, it can be the most crazy idea of all. But I've found it to be incredibly useful. And so when you're talking about, for example, okay, we, I interviewed this guy by the name of Frey, Frey I'm going to give you his magical name, Freyta Shasan Asan, and he has a skull, and this skull's name is Hiram. Okay, and he, skull. I mean, are we talking about a real human? We're human? talking about a real skull. Okay, devil's and in the details, this, go on. <laughs> <laughs> and the skull talks to him mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. gives him all kind of information. And it's like, for example, again, you know, they got pregnant and the wife really wanted to know, is it going to be a girl or a boy? And so he went to Hiram and he said to Hiram, is it a girl or a boy? And Hiram's like, this is not what I'm here for. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and but has given him all kinds of help in his magical training and so what this magician does is he conjures these archangels and all kinds of like crazy high elevated magic and has conversations with these beings uh, or portions of these beings. Um, and it's really astounding. But the thing to me that he had this pet skull, it was Hiram. So Hiram, if you know that name, that comes from like the Masonic tradition. And Hiram was involved in the, oh, the Bible story, the, the temple that, um, 
anyway he's a he's a he's he's a kind of a famous character from the masonic age where he was um killed i can't even remember the story darling but anyway he was a masonic person personality and so he basically invoked him into the skull and he's there and he talks to him so i mean like that's amazing hiram abiff is his name yes yes i yeah of course i'm familiar with that okay so this is interesting he invoked that being into the skull yes so the skull's the vessel, essentially, yes. the physical vessel for that being. I would like to know where he got that skull from. Um, yeah, I know. I don't know where he got the skull from either. But what's really interesting, too, is that this idea of having a soul, let's call it that, for lack of a better term, is something that comes out of ancient Egypt. Like, the ancient Egyptians, when they created these statues, that the statues was for the purpose of ensouling yes. the spirits, right? And so that's why they cut the nose off them is because when they didn't want to have them be involved in the affairs, they cut the nose off so they couldn't breathe, so they could no longer come back into the statue. So they were trying to banish these entities by breaking off the noses of the spirits. So it's a very, very old tradition to have the ins the insult having um, an item insult by an individual so you know he was a very very interesting person to talk to and very much like yourself these entities have guided him in his progression as a magician and provided like you say also not directives but clues and riddles that you have to kind of sort out for yourself right to to continue along his journey yes yes because it's interesting you were talking about peter kingsley in one of your um videos on youtube and i am right now reading peter kingsley's um in the dark yes what is it called i don't think that's quite the right title but in the dark places in the dark places of wisdom yes yes and he was talking about how was it there or was it it might have been um schwaller de lubich oh my god i'm reading like three books right now <laughs> same time. i had the same thing it's like who said it particularly when they're uh kind of similar themes and they're weaving together so beautifully it's so hard to remember who said what but yeah. anyway what was the idea well, but to your point about how they teach or they they speak in riddle and and yes. and sort of give you clues and this quote I was reading spoke to that that the way we've been taught is everyone's looking to the teacher and the teacher basically tells them the information and then they just kind of memorize and regurgitate whatever but but the truly it was done where you were you you on your own you were seeking this and you you had to find it on on your own there you know there so so you know what it was it was schwaller it, oh schwaller okay schwaller yes. in in his book on number i actually hang on Wait. oh wow i don't have that one wow this is uh schwaller's book a study of numbers and so i just i read this paragraph where he writes, it has always been said that initiation occurs, quote, by and in itself, end quote. One cannot explain the life of things. One can only merge oneself with it and thus feel it. In yes. every epoch, therefore, the goal of all initiatory institutions was to give to whoever asked for it the means of self-initiation. Among those called in this way were sometimes found those who were chosen. It's very much like a joke. When you, that moment where you get the joke and you burst into laughter because you've made a connection that didn't exist before, okay? And you're, you spontaneously break into laughter because it's like all of a sudden it makes sense. 
when you are given these riddles and you have to seek the answer for yourself, that same kind of kachink happens in your brain. And it's, it's an initiation of sorts and you've been changed. You won't forget that when you're doing 10 times eight or seven by six or 12 terms four, and you do it by rote, <laughs> as I know well, these things, these numbers that I memorized have forgotten, but those discoveries that I've made on my own, these little initiations, these epiphanies, they stay with you forever. And that's how you expand you know, and that is why it's, it's the true method of teaching, the true method of teaching. Mm -hmm. And look, you know, I don't know, they also say that in the initiatic schools, there's several different things that are very interesting to me. Because wrapped up in this, one of the things also that is because we were studying ancient Egypt, um, there is a difference between sort of uh, magic and mysticism, if you will. And so I mentioned Stephen Skinner before. He's very fascinating. And he talks about the difference really between the mysteries more than the mysticism, but the mysteries and magic and the differences between the two. And the mysteries were very much an initiatic path. And they utilize things that involved a shifting of consciousness so that you could get yourself into an altered state of consciousness so that you would be open to, again, these rivers and flows of forces and energies. And one of the ways that they did that was with fear. Another way was with entheogens and dancing. They also did it with sex. They did it with drumming. So there's many different ways that you can alter your consciousness. But getting back to this idea of are these, inter are these entities individual or not? Peter Mark Adams has done a lot of research into the mysteries per se. And one of the most interesting things that he talks about is that when you're going through these initiatic experiences and you're undergoing the mysteries, you can kind of take the slow path up the road, which is like kind of doing the work and the meditations and the practices and all yourself, or you can connect with a deity of sorts. And this is what the Dionysian mysteries and all that kind of thing were about, where essentially for a period of time, you invite this entity to come down like a helicopter and pick you up and take you up to these levels of experience that you can reach on the slow road by yourself or on the fast road. And again, going back to, I kind of mentioned this earlier, this is what Plato was talking about being in the company of the gods. And so that again, is that in your head? Is that outside of your head? <laughs> is this an, you know, an independent entity that's bringing you up? Like it's, it's very interesting to kind of figure out what is at play? Are they forces? Are they entities? Is it your own psychology? And I probably think at the end of the day, it's going to be a combination of things because we do know, you and I do know that we can change our psychology and change our whole world completely from changing our psychology. And one of the things that really impressed me about the ancient Egyptians is that they seem to have this concept of cymatics and cymatics, the best way to describe it, and you might've seen it, or people might've seen it is they put like rice or salt or sugar on a metal plate and they put a sound to it. And this, this, the rice or the salt makes a specific shape. And then they turn up the frequency and nothing happens, nothing happens, nothing happens. But when they reach this next threshold, the shape completely changes very, very quickly. And so the whole, the whole pattern will rearrange into a whole new pattern. And somehow the Egyptians are trying to communicate that that's the way our consciousness changes as well, right? So that we're kind of floating along on this frequency and then we'll have a laugh, an epiphany. We'll figure out a riddle and something will chink and our entire consciousness shifts. And where I think the magic comes in is that reality shifts around it completely. 
as well. Our entire reality shifts. So when I hear your personal journey about the house and the farm and, you know, the girls wanting to go to school and all of a sudden there's the house, to me, that's one of those cymatic shifts right? Where the reality just changes around you. And that's a concept that the Egyptians, so this is in, in magical Egypt. Again, why did we kind of get to magic is that there's all of this symbolism. So there's words <laughs> and words are a very useful way of communicating ideas, but symbolism. And if you're looking at Shwala, Shwala is like the He's the man in terms of symbolism. But we were talking about kind of these forces, these rivers, these netters, these influences that flow. The symbolism that the Egyptians use create an interconnectivity between your conception, your perception, and these forces. To understand the idea, there has to be a meeting of your mind and the force through the hieroglyph, right? Because the hieroglyph is a symbol and the symbol evokes something in you. It's like when I was saying before about the word gut feeling versus clairvoyance and gut feeling has a more tangible visceral reaction. When you're looking at a hieroglyph or when you knew how to look at a hieroglyph and you understood that the bird part of it could mean light and spirit and when even birds like the word bird when you think of a bird there's all of this meaning that 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 is attributed like it has a nice sound and it flies away and it's flighty and it's you know there's a whole bundle of associations there so the the Egyptians utilize symbol instead of words to communicate these ideas, but in that symbol, it's tying into this whole plethora of information that's beyond just the word bird, right? It it what does the bird do? What does the bird mean? How does the bird act? You know, what is the lifespan of a bird? It's just so much more of a densely packed information bomb. Well, it's so, like it's like that saying a picture speaks a thousand words yes thank you exactly exactly and so they just had and, and this is where shwala is so incredibly important and what's really interesting about shwala so shwala shwala is kind of the stone on which all of our work is built in the respect that Shwala was the influence to John Anthony West, who was kind of the star of our first documentary. And so Shwala influenced John. John took Shwala and kind of popularized it. And Magical Egypt grew out of that. But Shwala's insight into the ancient Egyptian mind is so incredibly profound, so deep and so non-materialist that when he published this book, he spent 15 years in Luxor. And basically this was, you know, at a period of time where the Egyptologists were saying the ancient Egyptians were pre-philosophical and didn't even understand what they were doing. He came out and said, I know, but this is history, right? He came out and said that they understood consciousness and all of these kinds of things. The Egyptologists erected, it's in writing, let's erect a common wall of silence around his research because it was so threatening mm -hmm. to the paradigm that the ancients could be so incredibly advanced that they just didn't want to have anything to do with it. So slowly his research is coming out. And he doesn't speak to magic directly, but he speaks to this interconnectedness. And I think that at the end of the day, why, from my research anyway, why magic works is because it is, everything is one big interconnected web. And there are cycles within that web, there are flows, there are currents. 
And when you understand that you're part of this web, you can, at the peak of it, right, what you appear to have been able to do is actually adjust the blueprint of it, right, that you've gone in and actually tinkered with those flows and those maps. But for me, I'm going to be happy with just being able to go with the flow <laughs> instead of against the flow. So if I know there's a flow, I just want to be able to, okay, I know there's a flow. And then there are people like yourself that have this natural instinct that are like, okay, I can feel this. I'm just going to, eh, 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 and actually tinker with the mechanics of it. And that I think is what magic is, is that when you're part of the understanding of the blueprint of it all, and you have the intuition of how to go in and tinker. Yes. 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 Now you mentioned at the first, at the, the beginning about will that you would speak to the role of will in magic. So be, because this is a perfect foray into that. Yes. Look, Will, so one of the things that kind of gets really weird is that if I, I mentioned Lon Milo Decant before and the whole Alistair Crowley thing, right? And so as I said before, Alistair Crowley defines magic as the art of causing change to occur in conformity with Will. And so what happens is that you have a lot of, like kids that got mad at their parents and they decided to go into magic to kind of get the parents upset. And they took this will idea as what I want to do, right? It's my will, my will be done, right? And that is not at all what Alistair Crowley meant, right? There's kind of two ways that I'm playing with this idea of will. And the first one is that the idea of telos, okay? And so telos kind of comes back to this idea of Ingo is playing with, with fates and destinies and the idea that we're all here for a reason, okay? And that when we're born into this incarnation, that before we came in, we decided we're here to do something or to learn something or to clear something, or there's this bigger destiny for our life. And it doesn't mean big. It doesn't mean we have to be a movie star. It means that there's a game plan, right? And so that we're born in and we're drawn towards this thing. Telos is being drawn, right, by this underlying um, reason for our lives, and it might be like there's a great example that um, my tell my I, my reason for living might be that I want to learn about abundance, for example, before I incarnate. I want to learn about abundance, and so I'm born in to life, and I'm born as Paris Hilton. That's one way of learning about abundance. But I could also be born in and be a street bum because I'm learning about the lack of abundance equally as viably as well, whether I'm Paris Hilton, I have it all, or I have nothing. There's still absolutely valid lessons about abundance. And so in that example, the telos is learning about abundance, right? So that my, my incarnation is about learning that. But it also seems that there's this kind of the question of the big the big brain, right? That Bernardo Castro talks about, or whether we want to call it God or the creator or the goddess or whatever, okay? And the architect, the great architect has a design for this incarnation, for this thing that has been born and has been called Venice. And whether that telos came from me or whether that telos came from the architect, that there is this reason. And that is the will. That's what the will is, right? And so it's kind of, there are people that have a very kind of a Christian approach and they're like, I'm just going to give over the 
details to the bigger mind and they find that things get easier when they do that, you know, and you've said to me things like, oh, I'm just going to let the, the those people figure it out because those entities, they have more information. So I'm just going to leave it with them and let them guide me. And that's kind of, is my understanding of what the will is. It's kind of, let's take it out of the ego, <laughs> you know, let's let the higher levels do the guiding. Yes, I see it as a collaboration. Mm. So, so, so uh, uh, I am creating, if you will, like it's a creative, it's a creative process, really. And so, and, and it's, so it's me, but it's me, for instance, in this living field. So, so I'm activating within my own mind and I'm collaborating, if you will, with the field with, and, and with that master intelligence. And I'm an intelligent person. And at the same time, again, you know, through all our filters and our conditioning and everything, you know, we all, we all have a long way to go. And, and, and so, so that's also where I would reach out, of course, to the greater field that be, which has greater access than I do. Right. And well, and look, a really great example of that is Gordon White has kind of magic class and he does this whole like maybe it's like six class series on just sigils. Right. And I love sigils because they're really fun. And you seem to everybody that seems to get into sigils the first time it works, right? And so it's a really gratifying exploration into magic because you actually do magic. And I had this friend come and he's like, okay, I'm going to, I want to magic up a purple octopus, which is like just so bizarre. And so he did his sigil and guess what comes by a big truck with a purple octopus on the side, you know, it's like, how does this even happen? So it's one of these really, really fun things, but what he goes to great length is if you want to have an outcome, um, let's say, I don't know, you want more money, for example, or something, and you think that you need, the way that you're going to get more money is that, um, I don't know, you want to win lotto to get more money or something like that. So you do a sigil, I want to win lotto, but really what you want is more money and you're focusing on winning the lotto when somebody comes over here and says, hey, I've got a new job for you or can mm -hmm. I give you this thing that you could sell or whatever, you're just blind to the 20 other ways that the universe is trying to give you money. Right? <laughs> In fact, what you're doing is you're running interference. Yes, so, so, so magic, and this is where magic is such an art because the devil's in the details. And we want to be very careful when we are conjuring, you know, I, I knew someone who used to say, okay, they'd sort of create, this is what I want or better. Yes. <laughs> or better, <laughs> which is so great, you know? And then again, you, you've sort of you know, given a nod to the greater field to say, and this is what I want. And I know you guys have quite good access. But that's what I love. I think you, last time I talked to you, you said something like better than I could have expected. And I'm okay. just like, I'm going to use that because why not just say, I want this all better than I could have expected. It's going to turn out better than I ever could have expected. Well, it's the power of words and how are you going to craft your words? Just like that, that saying that it's all in the question. Yes. I had one teacher and I was asking him all these questions. He's like, you're not forming the right question. I'm not going to answer that till I hear the question formed properly. And I was like, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> I know, but like even one of my teachers, uh, John Martini, said that, that the quality of life is is based on the quality of the questions that you ask. Mm -hmm. And it really is. And it's really interesting now that we've got AI. So we have this AI thing going on, which is really interesting. And I don't know where I sit on AI right now because the ai that we're dealing with right now is not really ai it's machine learning okay it's not actually intelligent it's not thinking so 
when I look at magic, one of the things that, and kind of why you need to get your mind right, one of the factors there is your unconscious or your subconscious, right? And so if you haven't uh, kind of done the work to try to make your beliefs obvious to you, your fears, your hesitations, your limitations obvious to you, then these things are unconscious to you and they can interfere with your uh, your magic. For example, you want something to turn out better than expected and the universe presents you with an opportunity to do a podcast and your fear of public speaking stops you. And if you hadn't had the fear, you could have done the podcast and got famous and made lots of money. So it's your stuff the universe is bringing you opportunities, but it's your stuff that stops you, right? So what's really interesting about this machine learning, this thing we're calling AI, is that it is essentially the conscious and subconscious of humanity, hmm. right? So basically what it's done is it's taken all, everything we've ever typed, all of the good philosophical books and all the I hate you, you bastard, whatever, right? And it's got it all in its database. And so it's really like a tangible manifestation of our subconscious. And so when you are trying to get something out of AI or what chat GDP, the quality of the answers dependent on the quality of the question. And so it's really interesting. It's like as above, so below, you can ask it a question. It'll come out with, ah, sounds really good. Like my bio. <laughs> sounds good. Like good sentences, good words. Does it have anything that relates to Venice McNeil? But you know what I mean? But like it's, it's, it's very much a reflection of humanity. And so <laughs> my little contribution is I try to put in vitamins into the database, right? I, I would say soul. Yeah. Because AI has no soul. It has no, it doesn't have, it doesn't have, put it this way. If there, if Baudelaire has written a poem that has incredible soul in it, now it's in AI. Mm -hmm. It's available to AI to draw upon, right? So does that strip the soul out of Baudelaire's writing? It can't. I mean, Baudelaire's yeah. writing stands on its own. So and then does it have, so then when it's giving me, does, like I see, does it, does it have soul in it? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I think that it, it has, what's an also really interesting is if, if you write something and you're like, I wanted to write it, write me a paragraph in the style of, I was playing around with uh, Hunter S. Thompson because mm -hmm. his writing style is very unique mm -hmm. and it can use the words, hey, Buster, the catchphrases and all that kind of thing, but it, but it can't, it doesn't have the sparkle right? It doesn't have the soul that Hunter had when he was writing. It has the accoutrement, but not the vision. Yeah. Shall we say all style, no substance? I mean, there's, yeah. there, yes, there's the, a quality. So that's like when you sent me your AI bio and I didn't understand what you meant because I didn't know that people were doing this, like having AI do their bio. That's actually really creepy, but anyway. <laughs> Um, but I, I, I read through it and I was like, this doesn't seem like Venice's writing. And why would she say Venice's, you know, as an individual, whatever, but there was something missing. So I would say something off. Yeah. That's how I yeah, felt. It like is off. It's off. absolutely off. Like, yeah, look, I, first of all, I don't have a press kit. I don't have a bio. I don't have any, that's why I'm like, what photo can I send you? So I really should sit down and do it myself. But yes, it's like you said, style, not substance. Mm -hmm. And it's, but the substance is human blah, right? It's all the stuff that's come out of us. That's the substance of it. And so it really is interesting because as I said, it has Baudelaire and it has 
the worst of the worst of the worst. And what's really interesting is they say that if you play with it long enough, the algorithm kind of goes on a downward spiral because the negativity eventually comes out. I was looking at, there's a, there is a, uh, I can't even remember his name. It's such a weird name, but he has kind of been one of the AI gurus, Len, Gerard Lenoir or something like that. And he was saying that when you test the algorithm, it it goes on a downward spiral. It might start all happy and sparkly for the first 15 questions, but after like question 16, it starts to get dark. And well, I think that's also a reflection of just humanity in general. In terms of the AI that I'm talking about, the one that did the bio very badly for me, <laughs> right? That I don't have enough information on yet to my jury's out. However, the algorithms that are operational in the YouTube and in the Twitter and in the Facebook and in TikTok and all of those kinds of algorithms, this is where I run into magic operating on the masses, okay? Because this is where I run into the will, people's will causing change at a distance on humanity, okay? So we have a group of who knows, 3,300 people that have decided that they want humanity to follow a particular course of action that is not in our best at all like it's not it's not to our good it, it doesn't help us at all right no, the way that they want us to go right and so they have made these decisions and through the utilization of the same techniques that i employed when i was in advertising that have now been supercharged 10 million times right yep. they are affecting our minds at a layer that is so deep that we don't even understand that we're being affected. Okay. So to me, this is magic of the highest order. And they've, it's, a, it's, it's like a weapon of mass destruction. They've developed it to such an extent that within an hour, these ideas are put into the population and accepted without questioning and adopted as truth and the whole population gets swayed in a direction and this is incredibly scary to me yeah it's madness scary. It's yeah madness so you have the technology that arthur c clark is talking about so you have the technology and then you have this wisdom, mm -hmm. right? This wisdom. And look, it's crazy. Peter Mark Adams was telling me in, in he has a book that is called uh no, it's about a it's about a tarot deck. And it's not really a tarot deck, it's a it's called a turuki. And basically it's some kind of grimoire. And in this grimoire, it was made as kind of an artistic hmm, prize to show off to all of the other landed gentry how rich and famous this family was but encoded into this deck was basically the magical rituals that enabled this family to circumvent the normal reincarnation processes so that they could be reborn into the same family line so that they could maintain their power and their wealth i don't doubt that for one minute you and, know but, done. <laughs> but this is this was technology that they were publishing 500 years ago mm -hmm. and we have we like i had no idea <laughs> that this even existed until a year ago mm -hmm. i mean that how much of this technology have we lost you know that we're calling it magic but this was just what people did yeah hundreds of years ago like it's it's 
It's crazy to me. And, you know, Peter's really interesting because in talking about it, he's speculating about the families that we see in power now. And maybe that that information hasn't been lost at all. You know, that they're continuing. No, No, it's been sequestered to just a few. Unfortunately, they're assholes and they're they're hoarding it. And it's it's very self-serving to them and and you know i mean this has been going on forever in terms of i mean always there would be sort of key certain key pieces of information that would be kept to just a few and 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 also for noble reasons as well you don't cast pearls before swine or or you know people aren't ready for a certain thing you know so you so someone has to be sort of in charge to kind of you know, feel out the crowd. And if they're ready, then, you know, we, we, we put this forth. Well, like you said, I love the idea that when you know to ask the right question, the information is there, right? It's kind of like at that point, when you ask the right question, you're qualified to get the right answer. And this stuff like is apparently dangerous in the wrong hands, which we're seeing today. As we're seeing, yeah, here we are. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But again, you know, look, the art of magic also involves sovereignty and individual sovereignty and 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 a curious and yeah, curious and seeking nature, so that again, just like Schwaller was writing about the initiate that you are you are putting yourself on that path you are asking the questions you are and and i think it really has to be that way because the matrix to use that word is so seductive Yes. And and most people are seduced into all of that. And it's, it's like It's crazy how good that movie was. Like it really took these ideas and made them tangible and manifest in a way that people could actually understand it. Like it is science fiction. But yeah. Yeah, yeah it's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. So so the path of the magician that is the person who hopefully anyway is more of an independent thinker and is not necessarily seduced now granted you know i've been disappointed by a number of so-called magicians and certain decisions they've they've made which don't sound very you know magically astute to me but in any case but a true true magician you know has has eyes to see and, and is able to discern. Discernment is a huge piece in magic as well yes. for most of, of reasons. Look, discernment, like we were talking before about um, how when I did the inner child stuff and when I did the ancestor stuff and discernment to be able to determine what is you what's your imagination what's not it's it's something that you have to learn i think you know yes, and absolutely. i interviewed um uh, a real an anthropophysist and he wrote an amazing book and he's of the steiner lineage right so rudolf steiner was very big at developing these super sensible organs of perception so that you could understand see hear things beyond the material and basically the uh, discernment thing was one of the biggest things that they're trying to teach people because without discernment you don't know yeah you don't know if it's coming from your ego your fear your belief like you don't know where it's coming from and so this idea of discernment is really really huge absolutely but I just want to go back into the mm, initiation for a second part or the magician or the sovereignty thing because I had a a teacher that was really she was supposed to be on the women of wisdom but she didn't make it but she has a class called the nature of the soul and 
she talks about the fact we're talking about these fates and these destinies, these flows of life. And there is a point in our development where we're just literally going with the flow. And if we're in a good hundred year century, yay for us, if we're in the dark ages, boo for us, but we're kind of just going with the flow of the trends of where the cosmos is going at the time. And she says that generally what happens is that there is an awareness that awakens because this process of just going with the flow can be painful and generally is painful, right? And there's a part where the pain is so great that we decide we're going to climb out of the ocean and come onto the sand. And that is when we start our sovereignty. And that's when we become self-initiated into the journey and we start taking accountability and all of those things. And that's the first step. And so becoming the magician is actually, you know, way, way along that. But the ability to just get out of the quagmire of the universal flows and start taking accountability for yourself is really the first step. And once you do that, then this is where discernment comes in, right? To know which way to go. And we make so many bumps and bruises along the way. I have this girlfriend who has made such incredible such incredible advancement in her incarnation. But wow, did she mess up, you know, in the beginning, like when she started her journey, she basically made every wrong decision. And that's how she learned what a right decision is. And she wrote a book about it. It's an amazing book. So she can, I'm not speaking out of school, but it was like, whoa, girl, could you have made a more, <laughs> series of bad mistakes, but it taught her discernment. And now she's incredibly discerning. Well, so, that's also that old, old saying, you learn by your mistakes. Yes. Mistakes are teachers. They're yeah. they can be brutal, but they're, they're, they're some of our biggest teachers ever. Cause we don't usually, we don't forget. <laughs> it's usually, it, yeah, <laughs> most unpleasant. <laughs> No, you don't. I mean, look, yeah, it's, it's, I've made lots too. And again, it's that real learning, right? It's that learning that goes ka-chunk in your head and you figure it out. And it's not that rote learning that they try to do in schools. It's the same thing as the joke and the figuring out the, the riddles that your teachers are giving you is that deep down learning where you grow, you know, you have that cymatic change. My biggest passion these days is to try to get people excited about opening up to these realms yeah and that's why I love your work and that's why I love Veda's work and it's like all of these different aspects of look just you know put the material there for a minute and let's put your toe into the ethereal and see how exciting and the bottom line is is that when I die the experiences that I'm going to remember the most are the experiences that were otherworldly. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. They, the, those otherworldly things that have happened to me have been the most exciting, most rewarding, most emotional, most full of epiphanies in my entire life. And it's not going to be the time I got that $400,000 job. You know what I mean? That it's not, that doesn't make the stuff of my life rewarding and fulfilling and exciting and juicy you know it's the time that I took mushrooms with my husband and we couldn't speak to each other because we had too many but we traveled together through this incredible journey where we got to inhabit the great lovers of history and it was just oh girl that story one day after tea, it's just like so emotional. And we were both there. Like we both, we were both in China. We were both in India. We were both in France. And it was just like, wow, wow. Like so good. Like that's going to be one of those moments. And that had, I was sitting basically on the floor, you know? <laughs> yeah. 
yes, yes. And we all have the ability to access that realm of epiphany, not just through the mushroom, but just by virtue, by the very nature of who and what we are. And as long- I think the mushroom's great because it's like trainer wheels. Like it's hard to get somewhere that you don't even know exists. Yes, yes, yes. Very good point. Very good point. I think that's a good place to finish because you and I All could right, talk darling. for hours. Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm probably talking gibberish by now, but I have loved talking to you. Thank you so yeah. much, Shauna. <laughs> All right. So, so. The website, MagicalEgypt.com. MagicalEgypt.com is like the doorway to everything. <laughs> so you can find the you can find the podcast, you can find the blog, you can find the documentaries. Um, it just, yeah, it seems like we're doing more than that, but that's really, everything is at Magical Egypt. So just go to MagicalEgypt.com and I'm Venice, V-A-N-E-S-E at magicalegypt.com if you want to write me a note for some reason. But yes, magicalegypt.com is the gateway to us. <laughs> Gosh, thank you so much again. Oh my thank God. You. Thank you, my love. And um, I've enjoyed this and I'm so delighted to be a part of your amazing podcast. It's one of my favorites. And if you go to my podcast channel, you'll see that I've recommended your channel because it's so fabulous <laughs> so yeah no it's just it's you you have so much wisdom darling and and I also I love your um determination your strength you're you know that you you say you're a warrior and I don't think I'm a warrior to the degree that you are anyway and I really see that and it gives me strength so I want to say thank you for holding the space for all of us to kind of come and try to be warriors too so thank you <laughs> to hear the second half of this episode I will invite listeners to head over to the mushroomsapprentice.com to subscribe and fill your cup with lots more food for thought